This episode of Hit the Ground Running is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm Christina Royster. And I'm Yasmin Gagne. And you're listening to Hit the Ground Running, a fast company podcast where we help young professionals uncover how to make it in the ever-changing world of work. On today's episode, we talk about the results of turning our Zoom cameras off in every meeting for a week. We also speak with Dr. Courtney McClooney about working in this weird and, at this point, not that new remote office environment. So, Christina, how was your week? <laughs> well, my week was pretty good. It's been very busy. Actually, we're having a couple holidays coming up soon, so I'm looking forward to that. But I definitely have to get all this work done. The work doesn't stop just because it's a holiday. (laughs) So, um, you know, I wanted to talk to you about our week and how we have been doing on Zoom since our last episode. How was your week? Yeah. So to recap for our listeners, we spent last week trying being the sort of emphasized moment of this sentence to keep our Zoom cameras off in every meeting. It was hard, (laughs) (laughs) y'all. And this came out of our conversation on the last episode. We talked with Kate Davis. If you haven't listened to that episode, please make sure you go back and listen to that one. Back to the experiment. We basically tried to keep our cameras off in every meeting we had this week. And how do you think it went? Yes. (laughs) So poorly. I'm a real people pleaser. I just started feeling, getting like really worried that my bosses thought I wasn't working or that I you know, involved as I wanted to be. So, so I, I just failed. It's okay. I totally feel you. I was nervous and I kept thinking to myself, why am I nervous to keep my camera off? People do it all the time. Like, why am I so nervous? But, um, it is what it is. We tried and we will definitely, um, share with you guys on this episode, some of our voice memos, because we took notes about how we were feeling in that moment. So you will hear the raw audio diaries. Can I, can I hear yours? Yeah, definitely. I just finished my meeting that I was so nervous about. And of course, nobody said anything. I mean, this is the kind of meeting where we all have to take turns and share what we're working on this week. And so I just kept my mic unmuted and I said my piece. And (laughs) I feel like I was overcompensating a little bit with, um, you know, cues that showed to people that I was listening, like laughter or whatever. But... At least nobody asked me about my camera. All right. So that's how my first meeting went. As you can hear, I was very nervous. And I think the main problem with that meeting was the fact that it was an intimate meeting. There were only about six of us. I feel like in a large Zoom, you can kind of hide. But in an intimate meeting, you can see everybody in front of you. So let's hear your audio diary, though. So here's me after our Friday morning print editor meeting. As you can see, I hate failure. So I had my first challenge meeting, I mean, my first meeting after we set the challenge just now, and within like one minute, I failed. (laughs) Great. Man, I hate failing at things. It was a small editor's meeting, and everyone had their cameras on, so I felt like I had to turn mine on to not be rude and to look like I was involved, to look like I cared, because I I do care, for the record, I, I care. And because um, I'm like kind of a people pleaser. So feeling very sad about failing this so soon. But um, that's okay. I guess it's like onwards and upwards or whatever the thing is. 
I think this was just a really good learning moment. Like after all this, do you think that you will keep your camera off more or you're done with the challenge? I never want to try this again. <laughs> uh, I would agree with you. It's camera off for large meetings where I don't want or have to say anything. And maybe where I want to feel a little more anonymous. And then it's camera on for the smaller ones where I personally feel more comfortable talking in a sort of small group setting with people I know. Yeah, the thing is, you never know what's happening behind the scenes when that camera's off. I don't want my little brother coming in the shot or something like that. And so actually, I wanted to ask you a would you rather question. Are you up for that? Uh, I guess. Let's do it. Let's do it. So would you rather have a fire truck going by while you're presenting on Zoom or be Zoom bombed by a family member in the background? How important is this presentation? It's a weekly report meeting. Got it. Got it. I would say family member because I think my family is like pretty attractive. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. They're yeah. not embarrassing though? They're embarrassing. They're embarrassing, but you know. Because uh, yeah, my mom yelling in the background, my brother cooking lunch. You never know what you're going to get at my house. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Have you ever had like a bad Zoom bomb experience? Oh my God. So we had, I won't say what event it was. We had a live event. Sort of participants were split off into breakout rooms for discussion. Okay. And I heard I wasn't, I thankfully was not there, <laughs> but during this like small group discussion of like three people, uh, a naked person walked a naked, in the like, frame like, behind someone like, like fully, <laughs> fully nude. It's one of those things. I don't know what I would have done because I feel like I would have just laughed, but that's like I not totally appropriate at yeah. all. And at the same time, like, do you want to embarrass someone by being like, Hey Joe, there's a naked person in your camera. Like, I don't know how you handle that situation. Thankfully, the editor who did handle it was like a total pro. I think she was like very calmly shut down the situation, which like I couldn't do. That is crazy. Like you hear crazy stories about people uh, doing crazy things on Zoom, but I've never actually heard somebody experience that. And like you said, there's really only two things you can do. You can either ignore it. <laughs> which is so hard <laughs> or you can embarrass the person. So there's no yeah. really easy way to navigate all this. So I keep like qualifying myself. Like I'm an ex person when that's not really a thing, but I'm pretty shy and I find it really difficult to speak up in a big meeting, whether that's in person or on zoom. I've personally found having my camera off makes me feel way more comfortable um, in terms of bringing something up, but it it's really hard for me. And I'm curious how you feel about that? Because I know you're someone who is way more willing and finds it a lot easier, I think, to speak up during something like, you know, a, a company all hands meeting. Yeah, I guess your personality does play a part of it because I am an extroverted person on camera, off camera. You know, I speak my mind, but I feel like this whole remote work, work environment and being on Zoom has given me a different sense of confidence now I know, I know it's going to sound crazy, but like I have more courage now that I'm on Zoom because I just feel like it's just a computer. I'm just talking to a computer. And that's how I kind of compartmentalize it. So I, I don't get as scared as I probably would in person. And so to your point, we did have a um, company-wide town hall recently, and we were talking about some pretty serious topics, you know, diversity and inclusion. And 
I just felt more confident to speak up. Like, when do you ever get to just talk directly at the CEO like that? Like, I finally was able to speak up and I kind of sparked a conversation. Other people were totally afraid to talk. And by me speaking up, I didn't realize that I was giving other people some confidence to speak up too. So I definitely love the anonymity of being on Zoom because I did have my camera off during that time. I wonder how it would have felt if I had my camera on. I'm emotional. I probably would have started crying or got sensitive. Yeah, I would have cried like immediately. I was shaking. That's what people didn't see. I was shaking a little bit behind the scenes. That adrenaline was pumping because it was a serious topic about race. And as a black woman, I don't really want to. I already stand out enough. I don't want to stand out anymore, you know, but I'm glad that I spoke up and I'm glad that I had the cover of Zoom and not having my camera on in that moment. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we talk with Dr. Courtney McClooney about everything we've just been discussing. So that's Zoom etiquette and the new remote work environment. This episode of Hit the Ground Running is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Hi, Dr. McClooney. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Yasmin. Hi, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us broadly about your research and about your work. Yes. So I'm an assistant professor of organizational behavior in the School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell University. And in that capacity, I'm mainly trying to understand how we can create more diverse, equitable, and inclusive workplaces. The specific approach I take is trying to understand seemingly innocuous and neutral practices inside of organizations that create unequal and equitable experiences for members of certain groups. One of those practices, for instance, is wanting everyone to appear professional at work. And that is quite a loaded term. What does it mean to appear and sound and be professional? And the various ways that that creates inequality for, in my work, I primarily say this with Black people in professional workplaces and entrepreneurial ecosystems. We have far-reaching schemas in our head about who looks like a leader, sounds professional. So I try to unpack that in my research. How do you think remote work has either helped or hindered employees of color? That's a great question. I'll start with the hinder. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it didn't help. (laughs) I think one of the ways it's, it's hindered people of color, especially if we think about the type of organizations that are likely to have remote work at this time, it's one where people of color are underrepresented. Less than, I think, 20% of remote workers identify as Black in this country. Um, What happens when you are numerically underrepresented for a company and now isolated through your uh, work from home situation? I think some of the downsides that we will likely see happen is there's lots of network and connection opportunities uh, where now you have to go through virtual channels to connect with people who are probably already having difficulty connecting with in the in-person office. And we're also seeing this pressure to present yourself in a way that's professional for Zoom etiquette. And everyone is, is experiencing this, what happens when I'm looking at myself all day while I'm working? And then there's potential opportunities for micromanagement through the form of video monitoring that has emerged for some uh, employees and workers. I think for people of color, this becomes exacerbated when, like the conversation I was having earlier about my research, Notions around professionalism and and being engaged at work, all of that can be coded in a very racialized, gendered, and sexualized way. 
So how a person of color appears professionally may differ than people's expectations of a professional worker. Um, and being able to see ourselves, we now start to question like, oh, is this, is this the right attire? Is my hair okay? Um, what's happening in the background? Are, are they seeing artwork that in the U.S. context might look very strange, but in my cultural heritage context, this is totally normal. Our sacred spaces of home have now become opportunities for public gazing, particularly for a public that we put on a, a work persona. Some of the upsides for people of color is we're also seeing them form different types of connections. Uh, I think about rooms like Clubhouse or the various ways that we've seen social media being leveraged lately where if I'm dealing with the issue inside of my company, I can now easily go to a different platform and either vent or ask for support, um, which probably would have been difficult if you're at work looking over your shoulder, wondering, is someone watching me go into this chat room complaining about my coworkers or, or unsure of how to handle a situation? So I think those are some of the upticks that we will likely see for people of color in this remote work environment. Both of our jobs are kind of autonomous, but nobody's really keeping a close eye on us. But for some reason, we just feel like we have to show face in order to show that we're being productive or we have to message a certain amount of times on Slack so people don't think that we're just lounging around. And that definitely is one of the things that has been hurting me. I feel like I'm always on trying to prove myself, especially we're young women, too. We're both in our 20s. So we feel like we have something to prove. One of my biggest questions that I ask companies when they're trying to figure out how to be inclusive of, of everyone, I'll say, are, are videos necessary for meetings? And, and whatever happened to phone meetings? We used to do this regularly in the pre-COVID era. Uh, it takes a lot of attention and energy and, and mental energy for people to be on camera all day. Um, so to what extent are videos necessary? To what extent are the same work hours and work output necessary? during this time. That being said, I do think some people love, you know, the work from home, the flexibility and not having to perform in, in other ways that they were performing at work. Um, but the wanting to show that you're active on Slack, that's a really interesting, I think, detriment that people may not be aware of. We set ourselves a challenge over the past week that was like personally a disaster for me. And the idea behind it was that we would have our Zoom cameras off for all of our meetings, if possible. So I failed like right out the gate. Well, I guess I have two questions, which is one, do you see different groups or different age, you know, whether it's age groups or in different industries behaving in different ways when it comes to having your camera on or off on Zoom? And then two, when you're not seeing someone's face, like when you're either just talking on the phone or camera off on Zoom or when you're slacking, I think tone can get lost a little bit, if that makes sense. Sometimes if I ask a question on Slack, especially, I think it can come off as really pointed when actually like it's just a, it's like a random question. So prior to us having to communicate via Zoom, I think one of the things we took for granted was how much nonverbal goes into communicating Studies over and over again when we were doing in-person interaction show that nonverbal communication is, is almost 80% of, of actual speech. Uh, it's not the words that we're saying, it's the body language, it's the emotional expression on our faces, it's the use of hands or props. So with the loss of that or with the narrow you know, dimensions where we now have to present ourselves in these little squares is getting lost in translation. And we have to over-rely on 
our vocal capacity, the ability to change our tone. And when I'm excited, show you I'm excited, show my team. Uh, and when I'm upset, try to convey it, you know, eyebrow movement is, is becoming a new way of showing displeasure, right? Um, all the various ways that Zoom is creating this over-reliance on one form of communication at the expense of others, which I think is a detriment to, you know, advancing opportunities for people and, and making people feel included at work. In terms of industry differences, I think where we will see major changes are among the companies that were exploring things like a four-day work week or having explicit rules that there's no email communication after 5 p.m. or no meeting Fridays. They, I think, are probably more innovative or explicit around the use of cameras for, for meetings and large lectures. I do think it's not enough to, to just have a passive thing where, oh, people know they don't have to have their cameras on, unless it's something that's explicitly stated. I do think a lot of people will feel pressure. And, and I do think the companies that already have some of these rules around boundary enforcement are going to be the ones that also have explicit conversations around camera use. You know, our company doesn't necessarily have any set rules. For some reason, I guess I thought it was the professional thing to do to have my camera on when we first started this. Like, I don't know where professionalism came from, but that's just what I thought. And so now our company's having questions about asking questions anonymously and giving anonymous feedback to managers. And some executives are a little opposed to this because that's just their style. They prefer to be open and honest with everybody. Have your camera on, show your face. Some people are either shy or maybe they just don't want to show their face. And so I'm curious what you think about, you know, companies giving anonymous feedback or having that kind of anonymity, because as Yaz and I talked about, we like having our camera off because it does give us that anonymity. Yeah. Ooh, anonymity is such a tricky thing. I think historically, especially thinking about the racial history of this country, we know that anonymity allows opportunity for some of the most extreme and egregious forms of violence and for people to develop mob mentality, right? When they are not individualized, they can, they can join this larger faceless opposition. Um, so inside of companies, uh, anonymous feedback can certainly create opportunities for people to share things that are super irrelevant to the conversation and no consequences for them sharing this information. Uh, this is something that emerges in my industry where in academia, we rely heavily on student evaluations for teachers. And over time, over the past few decades, I would say, there tends to be negative feedback for faculty who are women of all races and, and faculty who are not U.S. born or, or English is not their first language. Very little of it is also about the actual pedagogy. The feedback that a lot of women faculty receive have to do with their parents. There's huge uh, discrepancies in the type and quality of feedback that scholars receive. And, and it usually happens that way because it's anonymous, right? It's like when you're anonymous, you can say things um, that are irrelevant. That being said, inside of companies, the power differences between employees and managers is real. And it, there might be a lot of consequences for an employee to share what is considered a real concern to their manager without some sort of backlash that could be enacted if the manager is not favorable or if the employee does not feel safe to express certain ideas. And given what we know about the representation of people of color or people from other marginalized groups at work, if you were to share feedback with someone that's explicitly about race or explicitly about you know, some other form of marginalization, it could be easy to identify who that person is. Uh, so my overall recommendation for companies when they want 
people in power to have feedback is to collect as many forms as possible to keep it anonymous um, to some extent, but to also be clear on what is this feedback for, how often are you going to receive it, and what is the follow-up? Is, is it just giving feedback for feedback's sake? Is there anything that's going to happen uh, post-feedback? And do employees know that they are protected in, in their feedback giving? And also, is there someone who's actually there to make sure irrelevant feedback is not part of this pile that this information. I always wondered that with student feedback. It goes through so many hands before it reaches me. And I'm like, how did this comment about what my butt looks like in this dress make it to this cycle, you know, amount of feedback? Like, how is that relevant at all to my pedagogy? Um, and, and it goes through so many people. So I'm always shocked that they think I need to know this. People should just keep their comments to themselves. <laughs> Well, recently we actually had a company-wide meeting and I'm talking like 200 employees on the Zoom call. And I actually was vocal on this call. I had my camera off, but I spoke up and I the conversation was about what I just asked, you know, you know, giving anonymous feedback. And I spoke up against, not against one of our executives, but I had an opposing opinion. So I posed my opinion and I just wanted to know what you think, you know, our interactions on Zoom, does that kind of give us more comfort? Does that lower our inhibition? Because I don't know what got into me. <laughs> so I'm starting to collect data on this with, with Black employees and their virtual engagements. But some of the things that we've seen anecdotally in our data is, you know, asking Black professionals, what are some of the things you like about working from home? And some of the things people said were, I feel comfortable now voicing my opinions, whereas before, um, sometimes people use their physical stature to intimidate people, stand over someone if they're giving feedback or while they're talking. And, and that's considered, you know, a way of intimidating and, and making people silent at work. I'll share my own personal anecdote. I, I People said, you know, what's one of the things you like about working from home? And I said, I don't have to worry about people touching my hair. At work, I, I will walk past certain people, you know, I've been several jobs in the past um, and people would get out of their chair, come out of their office to follow me, reaching, you know, hand out stretch to touch my fro, braid, whatever is in my hair at the time. Um, and I said, it's been so nice to connect with my colleagues for the first time without wondering and worrying so when are they going to try to touch my hair? When am I going to have to have that awkward conversation that my body is not available for you to touch and have to swat away hands? And then there's also, you know, harassment hasn't gone away, unfortunately, in the workplace. Um, I do think it's evolving in this new virtual environment, but we will probably also see hopefully a potential decrease in, in the type of physical harassment that people might have been experiencing at work if now they're remote. What advice do you have for us when it comes to kind of interacting with our colleagues or, you know, working remotely? You know, if you're kind of a more early career professional, are there any kind of best practices that, you know, we should and our listeners should keep in mind? It's a great question. Um, so I initially thought we'd talk about Zoom interviewing, which I think I have so many opinions about. Um, because I, I know judgment is real, right? It's like I'm a psychologist and we make snap judgments on people for the smallest tidbit of information and having a zoom window there's so many things that can capture your attention you know people are probably wondering is she congolese if you recognize that flag i have a harry potter shirt on what does that mean is she a millennial yes i am uh, but you know all these different things that can capture people's attention and make judgments so 
I think that's always going to happen. And it shouldn't be on the early career professional to worry about all the things that are going to attract someone's attention, whether you have a Zoom background on or not. There's going to be opportunities for people to make judgments, including things like, well, why do they have a Zoom background on? What's behind them, right? And so that should not be your worry. You do what makes you feel comfortable. In terms of clothes, because of my research on like professionalism, I I do think that how people physically show up in these Zoom windows is, is going to affect not just the person watching you, but also the person wearing the clothes. Me, whenever I wear a certain lip color or a certain jacket, my mood changes. So if I'm already feeling down or tired, I'll try to put on something bright or warm or something that reminds me of a favorite childhood book to prepare me for whatever it is I have to do that day. So that would also be part of my advice is wearing things that match your mood or whatever sort of energy you're trying to capture that day. Also do speak up, speak up, speak often. And when, when unsure of what to do, ask what are the professional norms for this meeting? What are your expectations uh, for us in this meeting? But again, a lot of people think passively about the camera situation. Like, oh, everyone knows they can just make a choice, but we don't. So it's up to you as the meeting organizer, as the leader, as the manager to set some norms and, and also be able to defend those norms. And I think that's the part that a lot of managers are not comfortable with. They'd rather leave it to the you know atmosphere to, to, for other people to decide what they want to do. So then I think it's incumbent upon the leaders and the managers to gather whatever data you need to gather to help you make these decisions. Ask your employees how they're doing. Ask them, do they like turning their cameras on? Do pulse, you know, engagement measures throughout the day. Are you seeing people's engagement go up and down whenever they are in camera required meetings versus non-camera required meetings, right? Like how, how are there different metrics they can use to better inform their meeting norms, I think would be um, a great use of time as, as opposed to just watching people do their cameras all day. The last thing I guess I'll say for the early career professionals too is remember that we're living through a pandemic and this is the one that you know, we've never experienced in our lifetime. Give yourself some grace. Give yourself some compassion. Uh, I have laundry on the other chair over there. They can't see, right? I, I literally pick it up and move it from place to place. And there's nothing wrong with that because this is new for all of us and it's something we want to figure out. And for companies, if they want to retain and, and help to promote a lot of their early career talent, they have to figure out how to adjust to these current working environments as well. I don't think remote work is going away anytime soon. So I do hope that through conversations like this, through more research, we can develop more inclusive remote work options and ones where people actually enjoy zooming into work. Well, I think that's I think that's a great note to end on. So show yourself some grace. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Yasmin Christina, thank you so much for having me. This was very fun. And I look forward to continuing to listen to your podcast, learn all the ways we can do better at work. So let's talk about our takeaways from our interview with Dr. McClooney. That was a great conversation. And for me, I would say my main takeaway was the fact that I don't have to figure everything out myself and I can look to leadership to really set the tone for our virtual meetings. I always just assumed I had to have my camera on. I never <laughs> realized there was another option and that 
kind of comes from my leadership. They had their cameras on, so I turned my camera on. And now I think that maybe I could go back to my manager and say, is this a camera on meeting or camera off meeting? You know, do I have to speak in this meeting? And that will really set the tone for future meetings. I never thought about that. So thank you, Dr. McClooney. And one that I loved was her last point, which was show yourself and show others some grace because we are in a pandemic. Yeah. You know, like your equipment's going to malfunction. Your cat's going to get in the frame as you record a podcast, <laughs> you know, to all the bosses out there, please show us some grace. Yeah. I can't imagine people expecting any more than the bare minimum. <laughs> I mean, of course we want to do more than the bare minimum, but some days that's all I can muster up. Uh, some days that's all you're getting. <laughs> So show us some grace and some humility, and it really goes a long way. All right, Christina, what have you been keeping tabs on this week? This week, I'm keeping tabs on, I guess you could call it a platform or a collective, a group. I'm not sure what you want to call it, but I follow this Instagram account called Sisters in Media, and it's essentially women of color working in the media space. And they share a lot of great tips on there about job hunting, inspirational quotes. And last week they had a virtual panel with Jackie Ina, the beauty guru. And so it was great to hear from other women of color in media and just talking about their experiences and work and just knowing that I'm not alone and that we're all going through the same thing. So that was a really great panel to watch. And they have events like this all the time. And I'll definitely be keeping tabs on them so I can use them for any resources I might need. And anybody listening, if you want to go ahead and follow them, it's Sisters in Media. Um, So I have two podcasts that I absolutely love and that have really gotten through. Like every time I go on like my silly little walk during the day, I listen to it. Um, the first one is a podcast by journalist Karina Longworth. It's called You Must Remember This, where she kind of goes back and looks at kind of stories from old Hollywood. The most recent season was about producer and production designer Polly Platt, who's kind of been one of my heroes for a long time. She's the woman behind a lot of my favorite movies, like The Last Picture Show and The Witches of Eastwick. Oh, cool. So really, she's kind of someone who people don't know about enough, I think. Um, And she was a real pioneer for women in Hollywood. So definitely worth listening to that. Second one is You're Wrong About, hosted by Michael Hobbs and Sarah Marshall. I really want to be like their best friend. Like I would third wheel these two people forever. They basically look back at historical events and that could be anything from like, they did a really good episode about the satanic panic, but they also did a great series of episodes about Jessica Simpson's memoir. So they really like, they have range. They did a great series on the DC sniper attacks and it's essentially, they go back and look at all the things that we've kind of misremembered or things that we got wrong at the time Mm -hmm. or narratives that we bought into that like actually don't make any sense. Um, And they're so funny and so smart. And it's such a like well-researched tight podcast. I can't recommend it enough. I love that. Well, our listeners, if you want to share with us what you've been keeping tabs on, make sure you tweet at us using the hashtag hit the ground running. My Twitter is Miss Chris D. And what about you, Yaz? Mine is at Yasmin Gagne. That's my name. Thanks so much for listening to Hit the Ground Running. Don't forget to subscribe, to rate and recommend the show to a colleague or friend or a colleague who is a friend. Or maybe your haters. You can still recommend it to them too. (laughs) Bye, guys. 